0: We're going to turn to God's word, and Helena is going to come and read from Matthew 19. Matthew
1: chapter 19, which can be found on page 986. When Jesus had finished saying these things, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who accepts this should accept it. This is God's word.
0: My name's Tracy. I'm a physiotherapist. I live in London, and I'm nearly 30 years old. I became a Christian about three years ago. Before that, I hated Christians. Uh, (laughs) I couldn't stand them. I I knew I was gay when I was 12. I dealt with that as a teenager um, and then sort of in my 20s in London, lived a very normal life as just another gay person in London. Um, I had a girlfriend. I had a mortgage. It was no big deal. I really couldn't stand Christians and their homophobia. The thing that really surprised me about my first trip to the church that I now go to is just how how really wonderfully friendly and welcoming everybody was. They weren't any of the things that I associated with Christians. They weren't self-righteous. They they didn't want to have really intense discussions with me about you know my thoughts on the Bible or my life or anything like that. They they asked me what I did. They uh, they wanted to know who I was and um, they genuinely wanted to get to know me and, and then the second and third time I went they remembered my name and they asked about things that I told them I was going to do and it was just very obvious that they were clearly just really happy I was there. Now that I'm a Christian it doesn't mean that I have to become straight or that I'm going to get married to boy or that that's what I want the way that I feel is exactly the same as before as a Christian I have always been attracted to girls that that hasn't changed at all uh, and I don't I don't think it will I can't see that happening that that's what feels natural to me Walking into church on Sunday is a bit like coming home it's like walking into a family living room and being greeted by your siblings only there are hundreds of them. Um, and it's a, it's a, just a wonderful experience. I've got some friends who've got two little boys, they're four and six. I've known them for two and a half years. They are wonderful. I see them nearly every week. I go around to read the Bible with their mum. but before we do that, I see them, I play with them, read them stories. If it's summer, we go on the trampoline. It's hugely precious to me being part of their family, And and I feel very much like, Like That's what I am, that's how they treat me. I go on holiday with them. If I'm having a hard time, I see them. It's been a really wonderful gift. What's good about my relationship with Jesus is that it doesn't change. It is the only thing in life that I can fully depend on. Everything will be taken away from you, your job, your money, the people you love, Um, but my relationship with Jesus can't. I am definitely more content now that I'm a Christian. Being a Christian doesn't mean that life is permanently joyful or free from sad times or difficulties or or just really awful things happening, but my relationship with Jesus and holding on to the truths in the Bible as well as having this wonderful church family. If my life were exactly like it is now in five years time or in 10 years time, I would not be disappointed at all.
2: Well, good morning. If we've not met, uh, my name is Matt Fuller. It'd be lovely to do so um, afterwards. If you're joining us today, um, we sort of hit pause on a normal practice of uh, working our way systematically through books of the Bible, teaching through uh, what's there, Book of Romans or or what have you. And uh, we're spending a month thinking topically on uh, these issues, God, sex, gender, uh, for a month. And there are motive issues, there are personal issues. Um, If you didn't know, just in relation to uh, that video we showed of uh, Tracy, Um, There's a group at church that meets uh, every so often. We don't publicise the meetings of um, those who are same-sex attracted. They meet together for encouragement uh, every so often. If you wanted to know more about that, uh, do just ask me. Uh, I can let you know when that is. But let's pray. Let's pray as uh, we turn to Matthew 19. Our great God and Father, you are kind. You're a good father. You made this world to be good. And even though it's fallen, your intentions are still the best way of living. Help us understand rightly this morning your intentions for marriage and why you've instilled a sexuality into each and every one of us. Father, help us to uh, grapple with this. Would our views be shaped by the scriptures and allow them to interpret our experiences, our emotions, rather than the other way round, we pray for our good as well as the honour of your name. Amen. So mostly this morning, I want to ask, what is marriage for? Or equally alongside that, what is sex for? Because today, essentially, we're Talking about those two things or the place of sex uh, within marriage. Now, let me just, as we begin, think, let me just suggest three different alternatives that people may come to this question with. This is not, you, you know, this doesn't cover everything. But when you find yourself in a conversation with someone, a friend at work, particularly outside of a church setting, about what, what is marriage for and what is sex for, I think people come to that with different. Um, Different backgrounds, different instincts, different uh, assumptions. So what is sex for? We're well, here, let me offer you three. Uh, the first would be sex as entertainment, a sort of pragmatic view. Uh, as long as there's consent, go for it. Just go for it. Sow your wild oats or even your mature oats. Just go for it, go for it, go for it. And um, I think that's sort of been the dominant idea for 50 years or so. Uh, perhaps since the arrival of the contraceptive pill uh, from the 1960s onwards. Sex is just entertainment. It's just for pleasure. So just, why expect anything more than that? Now while that has been, I think, a dominant view for years, that is changing. So uh, things such as the Me Too movement, everyone's invited, Um, they reveal consent can be assumed but not truly given, and that Sort of makes things a little more complicated for a free-for-all in the sexual arena. People are a little less certain. Or a recent survey, the Higher Education Policy Institute, just of university students in the UK. Would you have guessed this? So during their three years at university, or four, uh, two-thirds of male students had not had sex, and 53% of female students had not. Would that surprise you? I don't know what you make of that. But these days, a majority of university students don't have sex during their time at university. Uh, fewer men than women do. So while that idea of sex as entertainment has been dominant for decades, perhaps less so. So let me suggest a second. Rather than sex as entertainment, sex as a, as a sign of identity. Now, that is more recent and more prevalent, maybe dominant. I don't know about that. But uh, closely linked to uh, gay community, sexuality is the dominant marker, really, of who we are. Nothing is more important than our sexuality. And so naturally, it needs expressing, probably in a monogamous relationship, probably lifelong, but who, you know, that doesn't matter. But so you know that that is so prevalent today, hence the acceptance of gay marriage. And it would seem absolute madness to the majority of the UK population that two people who love one another can't marry and have sex. That's just who they are. So, that I think is perhaps more dominant now sex as a sign of identity. So, entertainment, identity. But if you're a Christian who seeks to live obediently to the scriptures, you'd probably have the view that sex is a powerful metaphor. That's not all it is. But it helps us understand God's love for us. Now, those are three wildly different views of what sex is. And so when you find yourself in a conversation with someone, it's just worth kind of establishing that early on. Because if you don't explain where you're coming from, your presuppositions, look, this is how I view things. Obviously, we're going to disagree on this. You're just going to miss one another and not understand what on earth the other person is talking about. you just got to understand that. Now, for those of us who are Christians, perhaps you live in fear of being asked um, at work uh, or by friends, what do you think about sex? Oh, no. Uh, maybe the thought that goes through your head. Because in those conversations, those who hold to a pragmatic view will say, "Oh, you you think sex just within marriage? Oh, poor you! Oh, poor, poor you!" And probably, certainly, if you're over the age of forty, that's what you'd have grown up with—only sex within marriage. Oh, god, you're missing out! Oh, poor, poor you! Would be uh, their perspective. That is different, though, from those who say sex is a key badge of identity. Because they won't pity you if you're a Christian. They'll be outraged by you. Very different. How dare you prevent someone expressing who they are? How dare you do that? So as Christians, this is not obviously the first topic probably we want to talk about. But if you're a Christian, you think, well, I don't want to talk about sex, because I don't think anyone gets converted out of promiscuity. I don't think anyone gets converted out of homosexuality. People are converted into Jesus Christ. I want to talk about Jesus. That's what I want to talk about. That's the most important thing to talk about, of course. But sometimes people will insist and say, oh, I don't care about that. I want to talk to you about this, because this is a big issue for me. Well, then what do we want to do? I think a starting place is to say, look, we're going to come from completely different places on this. Let me explain where I'm coming from. Of course, the considerable overlap between those three different views on sex and how they map onto marriage. Because if sex is entertainment, what is marriage for? Marriage is to make me happy. That's the purpose of marriage. And again, for decades, that's how people would have expressed it. Marriage is to make me happy. Um, what about the second view? If, if sex is a badge of identity, marriage then again is an expression of who I am. I'm married to this person. But again, if you're a Christian, you're going to think in terms that marriage, or well, one primary reason God has instilled it into creation is to reveal his love for us, to reveal the love of Christ for his church. Uh, Matthew 19 is a great passage to see that point very clearly. i say this is the second of uh, 4 we're going to do on issues of God and and sexuality, identity. Um, Last week we began by saying, uh, actually the starting place on this is, your identity is not found from looking within. Let me look within, let me be introspective, what do I find? Let me look within and discover who I am. Rather, identity is found by looking to God. And what he's done for me. What does my creator say about me? And what has he done for me? That is the starting place for that. And um, we have to allow the scriptures to interpret our experiences in life. Rather than saying, well, I've had these experiences and they dominate. And if I don't like something here, I just get rid of it. Or interpret it some other way. That's where we got to. So today, then, we're thinking about what the Bible says about marriage and about sexuality. Well, let me start with this, marriage. Its purpose, then, is to display Christ's love for the church. That, biblically, is the dominant purpose of marriage. But we'll work through it like this, of Matthew 19, the essence of marriage, the dignity of marriage, and then the dignity of the single life, Okay. Essence of marriage, dignity of marriage, and the dignity of the single life, those three. Matthew 19, uh, Jesus is on the move, he's left Galilee, he's changed region, but our immediate context is verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test Jesus, and they asked, is it lawful for any man, or excuse me, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, so that's the context, they want to... Trick him. They want to test him, trip him up. That's what's going on. And Jesus replies by saying, Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis. So, first, the essence of marriage is a union of male and female. Verse 4. Haven't you read? Jesus replied, That at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So first off, verse 4, Paul is creating from Genesis chapter 1. The creation of male and female comes after a long list of other complementary pairs, So a little list um, we may have. uh, Just just Genesis 1, it's heaven and earth, light and darkness, day and night, sea and dry land, male and female. These binary pairings just dominate Genesis chapter 1. And this just happens to be the climax of the story, male and female. So every one of them has a complementary partner that the other needs. Heaven and earth, light, darkness, day, night, sea, land, male and female—they need the opposite to them. One writer puts it: after the heavens and the earth come together in the first creation, man and woman come together in the first marriage. And throughout the Old Testament, God uses the language of marriage and sex to describe His love for His people. He, the Lord, is the faithful husband, and Israel, his people, are the unfaithful wife. But that's the picture throughout. They're not interchangeable. Then In Matthew 19, after a little reference to Genesis 1, you get Genesis 2, Jesus quotes in verse 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. The emphasis, again, one man and one woman is to display Christ's love for his church. But again, that's true throughout the New Testament. he places, perhaps two of the obvious ones. Ephesians 5, You've got that, Femi? So Paul could write elsewhere in Ephesians 5, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. It's a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. The man and the woman. A picture of Christ and his church. Or uh, towards the end, Revelation 19, uh, the poetry there. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. The bridegroom, Jesus. The bride... His people. So I I could give you a lot more, but from Genesis chapter 1 through to Revelation chapter 21, the Bible repeatedly, recurrently insists marriage is between one man and one woman as a picture of Christ coming to redeem his church throughout the scriptures. And so the story of marriage is intimately connected with the gospel because Jesus comes to redeem his people. The bridegroom comes for his bride. The Picture is one man, one woman. So as soon as you distort or change a biblical view of marriage, you've changed what salvation is. You've changed the nature of redemption. You can't pull them apart, biblically. So there's a little silliness, I guess. Sometimes you'll hear, oh, uh, Bible-believing Christians, like those idiots at Christchurch Mayfair. They just emphasize a few passages on marriage. They always go on about 1 Corinthians 6 or, or Romans 1, and they talk about the sexuality. It's the whole of the Scriptures. If you want to pull apart marriage being between one man and one woman... You're pulling apart the whole Bible, and you're just left with a mess. There's nothing left. From the beginning to the end, that's what the scriptures insist. One man, one woman is a picture of Christ's love for his church. And so the essence of marriage is a union of male and female. Let's move on to dignity then. Uh, Secondly, the dignity, the dignity of marriage. Well, that should be honoured. Let me read. Why then, they asked, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So verse 7 the Pharisees spring their trap. Ha-ha, verse 7, gotcha. Uh, why then, why then, if, if, if marriage is like this, why then did Moses command husbands to get a divorce? Jesus replied, no, you've misread the Bible there. Moses never commanded it. He, verse 8, permitted it. And only on one ground, that of sexual immorality. Because unfaithfulness breaks the one flesh bond of marriage. Tangentially, I would say elsewhere, one Corinthians seven. Paul would also say, desertion breaks marriage. I think within that, abuse breaks marriage, and divorce is permissible, permissible, but never commanded. And Jesus here says it's permitted because your hearts were hard. He says there was no confession, no repentance. No unwillingness, no willingness to forgive one or the other. But he's clear, isn't he, that this was never the creator's original design. God's design, one man, one woman, one flesh, forever. And so divorce is, if we could put it in these terms, it's never morally neutral. It may be the least bad option. It may be appropriate in some cases, but it's never morally neutral. Divorce is God's sad concession because marriage is meant to be permanent. Now, forgive me if I just paint with a a, a lazy broad brush for a moment, but uh, in terms of marriage, perhaps the world's picture is... um, Shop around for a marriage partner until you find perfection and then get married. Well, good luck with that. Um, uh, so you don't find perfection, so you lower your bar. Um, and then shop around and find someone that's okay. And um, then, 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 you, then you get married. Uh, but then, you know, a few years in, probably time for an upgrade because you're a bit bored. And so you get the new iPhone or the new spouse, um, whichever way. You, that's a sort of, I mean, I know that's lazy, but, you know, there's... You know, Striking, in the UK, fewer people get married than ever. I mean, partly that's because of cohabitation, but did you know that now, currently in the UK, the average age that a man marries for the first time is 38, the average time for a woman is 35. Only 50.5% of the UK population over the age of 16, marriageable age, are married. So a smidge over 50% are actually married these days. So things are changing compared to what they were. Of course, the biblical picture is when it comes to marriage, choose wisely, then commit. Because marriage is a pointer to the biblical picture of Jesus and his church. And Jesus comes for his people and he commits. He's never unfaithful. He never walks away. He never says, I'm bored. He never says, there's someone better He's faithful. And so human marriage is meant to be a picture of that. The vows are great, aren't they? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death parts us, according to God's holy law. In the presence of God, I make this vow. I'm doing it seriously. But of course, everyone here who's married, and most who are not, would be able to observe Marriage is difficult at times. Circumstances produce stress upon every marriage. Your sin, your spouse's sin, produce greater stress than circumstances upon your marriage at times. Most marriages have seasons of intimacy when it's great and seasons of loneliness when it's not. Most do. And certainly for us, I think after 20 years of marriage, our theme tune will be the same as many of yours if you're married. Through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. It is grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will get us to the end happily married just about. You know, <laughs> it doesn't scan so well, but it would be true, wouldn't it? Um, and so marriage is one flesh forever. If you desire still to marry, we'll Pray that God will grant you a godly spouse. For those of us who are married, pray. Pray. We need, to, we need grace for repentance and forgiveness. But the dignity of marriage should be honoured. But then thirdly and lastly, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says the dignity of the single life should be honoured too in verses 10 to 12. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, Well, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. Because, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Verse 10, well, that's a slightly jaundiced view, isn't it? Can't get out of marriage. Oof, best bet, never met. don't do it then. Uh, that's a slightly negative view, overly negative, one might suggest. Um, and Jesus says, no, 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 come on, that's not right. Verse 11. Um, not everyone can accept the word, better not to marry. I think that's his reference. Not everyone can accept the word, better not to marry. Only those to whom it's given. And then he describes three different types of eunuch which is, I'm not sure you or I would instinctively break it down, but he breaks it down. So there are genetic eunuchs, people born that way. There are people who've been made that way, prisoners of war, to serve at the court of a king who doesn't want any um, impropriety. And then thirdly, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Some have renounced marriage for the sake of serving Jesus. And Jesus praises that. He praises that. Now, the Christian church has got it wrong, of course, at points on this front. I guess you'd say, this is, again, a pretty lazy comment, but the medieval church celebrated celibacy. You were a hero if you, you know, a monk. Then you get the Reformation, and all of a sudden, marriage is celebrated as possibly the only way. And again, over exaggerated. But Jesus here is different. Jesus says, No, I, marriage must be honored and singleness must be honored. Both. Church can still get that wrong. Uh sort a wedding earlier this year, and when um, uh, it came to the speeches, the, the, the father of uh, the bride. Uh, said some lovely things, amidst them said, it's it's lovely to stand here, uh, and now my daughter is complete. What? What? I mean, it may have been your dream for your daughter, but come on, mate, theologically, that's terrible. I mean, much eye-rolling from people there, I suppose, to people afterwards, particularly single people from 20 up into their 50s, Oh, lovely to be told I'm not complete. Thanks for that. That's terrible. I mean, it's not true biblically. It's not true to what Jesus is saying, commending singleness for his sake. Of course, you then also have to say that Jesus was incomplete, which leads you into a bit of a pickle Uh, as the perfect man, as the perfect human being who can represent us all because he's, I mean, it's just absurd. But that assumption sometimes can be in a church culture. Maybe I'll ask two questions to, to, to clarify. One. Question one. If marriage points towards Christ and his church, what does singleness point towards? Well, I think it's because, let me put it in two ways. First, those who are single and chaste are also saying marriage is a sacred thing. And we don't treat it lightly. It's a serious thing. You're also saying that God's love is faithful and committed, it's not something that's cheap. And just spread around. So you're still saying that. I think beyond that, singleness also says that marriage is only temporary now. Even the best of marriages now are for a short period, a few decades, at the very best. And in heaven, well there's marriage, but it's between Jesus and his church. Well, right, Sam Albury, some will know, has written plenty in this arena uh, as a same-sex-attractive minister. His book on singleness helpfully says, If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. A bit like Tracy's comment. Oh, look, I, I don't think I'll ever marry a bloke. That's all right. That's all right. I don't need that. I've got my Savior, a church family. I don't need that. So, if marriage points as that's the shape of the gospel, Christ, his husband, the church of the bride, singleness says, yeah, and he's all you need. He really is. It demonstrates that more clearly than marriage. And then a second question what about sex then? Marriage then, okay. What about sex? If sex is only for within a marriage, between a man and a woman, what, why have we all got a sexuality? Um, why is it just expressed from at least puberty onwards? Why doesn't God just sort of flick a switch? Do you not get an elixir on your wedding day and then all of a sudden your sexuality starts and before then you don't have it? I mean, in some senses that would be easier. Again, this is helpful. Let me quote. When the Bible searches for pictures to help us comprehend the character and the enormity of God's passion for us, the Scriptures have no problem in embracing the entire spectrum of erotic desire. Human erotic sexual desire is a picture of God's love. If I could put it in these terms... The Bible has many pictures to describe the work of Jesus and his care for his people. But at the risk of being misunderstood, the Bible doesn't say, or God is not just a sovereign king who demands that we follow him, although he is. He's a bridegroom who woos us to love him. It's both. But again, Jesus is not just a saviour who comes to do his job like a fireman pulls people from the fire because that's what he's employed to do. Well, I'll go and save people because that's my job. He is a saviour. But alongside with that, Jesus is presented to us as the bridegroom who, if I may, stands at the front of church and turns behind him and wide-eyed looks excitedly at the bride coming up on their wedding day. He's that too. So what are we talking about, marriage? Marriage is the shape of gospel commitment. Sexuality, it's the emotion of gospel intensity. Why has God instilled a sexuality, a drive within each and every one of us? It is to understand somewhat of His love, of His desire for you and me. But even at best, it's just a hint. Look, Some will say, what do you you think about sex? What do you think about marriage? Some will view it just as entertainment. Some will view it as the expression of who they are. But if we're Christians who rightly understand the Scriptures, marriage is a picture of our Saviour and His determination to save His people and commit to them and love them and hold them fast until heaven. And the sexual drive we have helps us understand that a little bit more, that it's an intense love that the Lord has. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, again, these these are issues which strike us deeply, strike us personally, strike us because uh, we know that those we love are are wrestling and grappling with these issues. Father, help, um, help us to think clearly, help us to think clearly about the place of marriage, the place of sex, to understand rightly your good design in giving us these things, to enjoy as gifts in this creation, to point beyond them to the intensity of your love for us. Help us be wise to listen well in conversations with people who are coming from a completely different perspective. Uh, And Father, in talking of these things, would we be faithful to you? But would we above all point people to the Lord Jesus Christ in whose love is the salvation that everyone needs, is the emotional contentment that everyone longs for. We ask it in his name. Amen.